So welcome back to the next episode of the For Dogs Sake podcast. Today we've got a fantastic episode again for you and it is on, is it really a training issue? Now that might not make sense to you now, but by the end of the episode, I'm sure it will make complete sense. As always, you've got me, Louise Campbell-Pearson, founder of Canine Friends, and we have the lovely... Jay Gurdon, founder of Blue Mole Minion, and I run goodguardianship.com. And I'm really excited today. We have a fantastic guest, uh, Sally Smith, aka Sally Gutteridge of Canine Principles. Hello! (laughs) Hi! (laughs) Hi, Sally! Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Okay, um, I was a dog trainer for many, many years. I started dog training as a military dog trainer in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps, and that was kind of 20 years ago. I don't know where that's gone, but (laughs) it was 20 years ago. Um, And in all honesty, the Army back then, they had um, very basic methods, Um, and it I didn't it didn't sit quite it didn't sit comfortably with me the way that some of the dogs were kind of treated there. I then went on and became a hearing dog trainer for hearing dogs for deaf people. And that's where I really learned about positive reinforcement and about um, clicker training, because all hearing dogs are trained through clicker training. Um, And over the years, I as a professional dog trainer, in all honesty, have always felt that I didn't quite fit. Um, Because with professional dog trainers, you're teaching a dog to do a role in order to make people's lives better. And in many ways, for many dogs, they they do get um, a really good life. They get a great life, a life that they're kind of they were bred for, that their breed suits, and, and they get that that good life. Um, but I've always thought that with dog training, we can overlook the basis of who a dog is because we're trying to make them be who we want them to be fit a mold be, be convenient for us but not actually what's good for them yeah in in many ways yeah you, you kind of I've always been quite sensitive and been quite soft and wanted to do the very best for every animal every dog I've met um, and that doesn't quite fit with professional dog training when you're creating a dog for a role you want them to have a, a better you know that you want them to have more say in what they do and that's kind of where where I got to with that so tell us a bit about your writing um I started as a freelance writer I've I've always wanted to work with dogs I work with dogs I didn't quite fit I don't think I quite fit fit with the people either because people were very um this dog has to be this tool for this person and I'm like, I just want this dog to be free and be himself and do what he wants to do and have a good life. So I never quite fit. Um, and I started freelance writing and I started writing dog behavior courses for a company called Center of Excellence, which is quite a big online courses thing. Um, and at the same time, I started really studying, really studying dogs and really learning. And I got to the point where I thought, As I'm writing courses for someone else, I might as well actually write courses for myself. 
and that's where Canine Principles was born. I, my husband was working as a shop manager in Dunelm um, and he hated it. And I just said, just leave your job. I'll do a lot of freelance work and together we can build a business. And we created the Canine Coaching Diploma um, and we got that out very quickly um, a lot of people enrolled on it very quickly and Canine Principles was born from there. Um, the thing with Canine Principles is it's always been based on positive reinforcement. And we've, we've gathered a few people around us as the business has grown, but we've always made sure that they're really special people that not only have um, positive reinforcement for the dogs, teaching the uniqueness and the individual individuality of the dogs and teaching a gentle care kind way and a training teaching kind way. We also like to use the same with kind of human students, as you know, Jay, because you're a tutor and a very good tutor at Canon Principles now. Um, so yes. actually, I mean, both of us, me and Louise, we're both sort of Canine Principles alumni. We've both done, done courses. So um <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great setup both from a student side sort of and a a, a tutoring side it, it's that the sort of the kindness and the looking at how to let the dog be a dog which sort of leads us into something else that we have both done um which we have both moved into family dog mediation which is it was devised by kim brophy who wrote the amazing book meet your dog i believe that um, there is a reprint coming out of that soon so people will be able to get their hands on physical copies again because it is just one of the most fantastic books i have ever read about dogs it really that is the way immediately that... adds to basket <laughs> on amazon honestly if you haven't read it if you haven't mm -hmm. read it get it it is a fantastic book it, um, it explains all the different kinds of groupings of, of dogs and the traits that they're likely to have. And it has led Kim on to develop what she's called the legs model. Um, and dogs have four legs. Sounds obvious enough. These are not the legs you are thinking of. <laughs> we have learning. <laughs> environment. I nearly laughed, snorted. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> we got the giggles for like five minutes the other day and I had to edit it I had to edit it all out of the podcast yeah. episode <laughs> oh, oh god right. where did I get to it before the giggling started right legs legs something about legs go okay I'll, I'll start with that again the thing is these are not the legs that you immediately think of we have learning environment genetics and self and each of these is a different but potentially interlinked factor which makes up every individual dog, every individual person. It all combines to make this being who they are. And Kim came up with an amazing course um, called the Family Dog Mediation Certification, which both Sally and I have taken. We are both certified FDMs. Um, and it just is the most fantastic way of looking at the whole canine-human relationship, isn't it, Sally? It don't. It kind of it takes the pressure off because you know, with it, in a dog trainer's world where you are supposed to be able to teach using the operant conditioning, and and you're supposed to be able to change this dog's behaviour, and we as people tend to put pressure on ourselves to say we must be able to do this or we're a crap dog trainer or we're a bad dog trainer or whatever 
And Kim's actually come out and said, it's not all about training. It's not all about learning. And she's brought the dog world, I think, to the place where we are at with human psychology and human behaviour. She's opened it all up to say they're not machines that you can teach regardless of their background to be or do us be a certain way or do a certain thing she's actually said they're all which a lot of us have been saying she's actually said they're all unique individuals and she's put a lot of work into protecting and into helping and assisting dogs in that way um I always say to my clients I actually often say to the question why I want my dog to do this I want my dog to do that why you know get actually putting that question back on them and kind of holding the mirror up a little bit in a nice way mm. often you're, you're really interested by by the comments that you get and and how I approach all of my um training and consults whether that's online or in person separation anxiety reactivity whatever it is um I very much will I see myself as a human coach my job is to coach you to understand your dog better and provide for them the best way that you can. And so that you'll, you hopefully will then get what you need out of it as well, but with the dog in mind, it's not about teaching and, you know, restricting your dogs to not do what they're, you know, bred or or their purpose is to do. One I always get is barking you know dogs bark (laughs) um it happens excessive barking we can look at what maybe is causing that but the barking itself we're not going to try and stop Mm. we're going to try and look at maybe what's causing the underlying problem that's meant it's now excessive absolutely and I think uh, like along with what Kim's doing I think we're seeing a massive huge wave of positive dog trainers, positive educated dog trainers who've come to the same place at the same time. The pressures come off the dogs and we're starting to understand them for who they are. And we're starting to say it's not either a vet issue or a behaviour issue. It's just who they are, who this dog is, who this person is. And that's kind of, it takes pressure off the dog guardians and also I also think it takes pressure off dog trainers definitely there's a lot of stress on dog trainers because of um certain perhaps tv personalities that are presenting the dog training world inaccurately quick fixes that social media presents to clients people becoming more impatient you know, life's now everything's so accessible at the click of a button. People want quick fixes. People want it to just fit in with their fast-paced lifestyle, and it's just not what is ethical for the dog nine times out of ten. And the pressure that you get, I really feel it, felt it. Not so much now because I have real confidence in in me and my beliefs. And I'm like, not a problem. I'm just not the trainer for you. If that's what you're wanting, there's plenty of other people out there who can help you with that. Um, But yeah, that that pressure on dog trainers is still probably a bit of a problem. But as you say, it's coming down a lot, a lot less. Yeah, you still got sort of a a lot of people who do Mm. hark back to the the sort of the old ways. um, And they do tend to be quite vocal. But the number that are on, on the positive side are growing. And as Sally said, I I think a lot of people are kind of heading towards where Kim's at now for themselves 
um, I, I know sort of taking Kim's course myself, it, you're sort of sitting there and you're just mm. going, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Or yep. I already do this, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just sort of confirming yeah. it. Yeah. It's just confirming the way that so many of us have actually been thinking for a long time. And it's sort of like, a, yeah, it, it fits in perfectly with the, like the canine principles ethos and the, the positive ways of working, not just with the dog, but with the people, because they're you so often find when you're trying to talk to people about how they're working with their dogs, cognitive dissonance is a very real thing. Um, and I know I'm a crossover trainer. I have been through this. And when you realize that how you have been working with your dogs is not the best way, it's not a comfortable process. It really isn't. So the best thing that we can do is to provide gentle education and the legs model really helps us to do that because it helps us to explain the whole why of the situation um could you just explain to the listeners what cognitive dissonance is yes cognitive dissonance is i sort of think it's best described as you find information that counters what you think you already know and the human nature is very much that we, we tend to sort of cling on to what we know and look for what's called confirmation bias so we tend to pick out the information that agrees with us rather than mm-hmm. acknowledging that what we originally thought isn't quite right now a lot of people have done that there are a lot of people who have sort of crossed over into more of the positive world it is a very uncomfortable thing and I think we really have to be conscious of that as people working with people, that it is uncomfortable. And you so often see that it can get quite confrontational when talking about the different methods of working with dogs. And that is absolutely not the way to go. Gentle and kind education is always the best way to work, no matter what the species. I agree. I mean, that's what we all do. We're all harping on. I mean, I recently uh, posted something on TikTok um, and it was probably one of my more, I don't tend to be to, too provocative on the different stances of training styles. However, I did feel quite comfortable and confident in putting one out about anti-prong collars and shock collars. Um, I obviously am very much in the positive reinforcement end of the spectrum, but I'm quite sensitive. So I don't necessarily like to put too provocative stuff out there because I can't deal with the comments. Um, but... <laughs> I think I'm on my like 10th person of needing to block um, and that I'm still getting them today. Um, and I'm not naming and shaming anyone. I'm not calling anyone out. I simply pointed out that um, using these items is teaching through fear and it's not needed. That's literally what I say in it. I point to like little things. It's teaching through fear. It's not needed. And that's the key thing. It's not needed. It's not needed. I don't know how many times I have to say it. If you choose to use those methods, Mm. you cannot argue it's not teaching through fear. A prong collar, for example, how do they think that a dog gets to the point where they respond to little checks in inverted commas and subtle movements? That's from the initial point the prong collar went on of being painful they then become scared of that pain and therefore then respond to these tiny subtle movements so you are still teaching through pain even though pain is no longer needed to be applied if that's in this individual case what's happening I'm going off a little bit on a tangent but I find it quite hard the 
war between trainers on this like why can't we all just uh anyway I find I find that that quite hard and challenging yeah I wrote a blog once about it's got to be about five years ago and it was um 10 reasons not to copy Caesar Milan and them still them still abusing me now it'll pop up somewhere and and people will but the day I wrote that the website went down and I had to go to bed. I was so exhausted from the abuse that was coming through from people that followed him. And I was all cold sores and <laughs> they could be, because people can oh. get really nasty online. Um, if you dare to, um, these people have a following. Um, but going I think back- you've hit a nerve a lot of the time. Yeah. I think you just hit a nerve and people get, it's provocative, yeah. unfortunately, in its nature. But yes, back to back to the back original to the, point. <laughs> the family dog mediation. Um, I've spoken to a couple of people over the last couple of weeks with dogs. Um, and both had no idea why their dogs were doing what they were doing. And both I explained and showed the behavior. And both of them, neither of them had used any bad training, um, but both of them really, really wanted that information. They were really prepared to make changes in their life for their dogs. Um, And I think it could be easy to think that we go into these places and we say, you're doing it wrong or or whatever. But I think a lot of people, they're open and they're ready um, a lot of people already know that the the um, television dog trainers are unkind or, you know, we, we've mm-hmm. got the world at our fingertips now. And it's those people, I think, that we reach with the with the family dog mediation and with the canine principles stuff. We want to reach the people that haven't already got their heads turned into a situation where they'll really fight it. We want to reach the new people with the new dogs um, and tweak their empathy. And that's how we're going to get people to really understand. Because I think a lot of the, the, the people that have seen trainers who are not good trainers, who have threatened a dog to change their behaviour, and that behaviour has changed because we do see it, they think that training's worked. And then you you kind of, you have to, you have to, you have to, it's not just a case of, it, it would be easy, yeah. wouldn't it, if we went to someone and said, this training is not going to work in the long run. And then four or five months along the road, their, their training falls apart because they used a bad training method. We could say, yeah, that's true. It's a bad training method. But what these training methods are doing is they're threatening dogs and those dogs are spending their entire life feeling threatened and cowed and not being that beautiful, free animal that they could be if we allowed them to be. And that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night It's the dogs that these bad trainers have got hold of have made these cowed, worried, like dogs that only be 30 or 40% who they are because they're good dogs and they respond um, to bad training and they don't dare 
go outside to get that bad training again because they're good and they're, they're humble and they're sweet. And then you get the people that come along and say, well, this worked. It worked, so it must be good. It works from a human perspective. It works. Exactly. Like perception means it works, but it doesn't actually work if you're yeah. looking at it from the perspective of the dog. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think each one of us here, we all, um, I know especially Sally, I know you have a, a dog like mine who is the one who has really made you have to look at how you look at dogs. Um, and same with Louise, with Luna, with her separation anxiety. They all have their little quirks that we have had to learn to recognise and work with. And that has kind of helped us realise that if they've got little quirks, haven't all dogs got little quirks? And while they might not be little quirks that you have to manage in a certain way because these behaviours can be problematic, but they have these. And we've allowed our dogs to have their quirks because we're not we're not beating them into submission, not saying anyone's doing that, but they're not feeling like they can't show how they're feeling because they're scared to yeah um allow for my dog to to come my dog has got this really rehearsed thing where if she gets scared she's very anxious she's on fluoxetine and it's helped a lot but when she feels scared in any any situation I've allowed her to run to me and get comfort and it I've become her uh portable safe space if you like and I'm okay with that that's not me babying my dog. That's when she's scared and barks as a result of being scared and runs to me and I comfort her, that barking stops almost instantly versus if I told her off or didn't let her come to me because she was scared, she would just bark and bark and bark and bark and more. But I'm allowing her to do what she needs to do to feel better. And to so many people, I'm rewarding the barking in inverted commas and I'm babying my dog and it's just so not what's happening I'm just allowing her to express how she's feeling and then come that's to me a perfect comfort. illustration of um that that old saying of yeah you mustn't comfort a scared dog because you're reinforcing the fear fear is an emotion you cannot reinforce an emotional state what you can reinforce is the behavior they show when they're feeling that emotion so if my dog is scared and wants mm-hmm. to come to me for comfort why wouldn't I want that to happen? People get caught up in the in the learning theory side of things. And I think what family dog mediation has done has it's added everything else. I did a, a talk a while ago and we had this, it was a reactive dog talk. And I'd said that if I, if Chip's, he doesn't now, but if Chips reacted to something, what I would do is give him something to bite um, because he would bark at cars, but when the cars come, I would just give him something in his mouth, and that worked. He was happy. He could chew his chew, and, and before long, he was looking back at me for the chew when he saw the car. Um, and I did this talk, and I told people, and somebody said that you don't give him the chew before the car you don't give him the chew after he stopped barking because he will think you're rewarding his barking and I just said I don't care if my dog's happy if I can give him something to do with his mouth that makes him stop thinking about the thing that he's scared of and makes him enjoy being there at the time I'm going to do that and sod the learning theory it's okay it doesn't it doesn't matter it works it doesn't have to be perfect you know like and and dogs don't have to be perfect um you know I always say I saw a client earlier um there's a bit of separation anxiety going on and a few other things and and I just said 
what do you what what do you want to help with most? Well, I want my dog to feel comfortable being left alone. Cool, we're going to work on that. Then all the other stuff doesn't matter. We'll work on that when your dog's ready and is feeling more comfortable. Let's get your dog feeling happier because that's, in my opinion, the most important thing. And of course, safety needs to be in, you know, and uh, taken into account. For example, it's not about letting a dog never be put on a lead because they could run into a road and hurt themselves or other people. It's not about letting your dog have free run of whatever they want to do because obviously safety and it's not appropriate, but it's giving your dog choices in the matter and having a say in the matter. Um, and it's not babying them, it's giving them a voice. And they've, they've not had a voice out there for so long. Dogs haven't really had a voice. They've not been able to be who they are. They just have to be the dog. <laughs> and and that's not what we want, is it? We want them to... I mean, you. I notice it moving forward as well. But, I mean, even even up five, 10 years ago, not that long, it was normal to leave your home, dog at home all day. We went out and just someone went in for an hour in the middle of the day. Nowadays, there's a big change I've noticed in that. You know, people are aware that that's not the nicest life for a dog to do five days a week. And I've noticed that change even from 10 years ago when I started out as a vet nurse. It was it was different then. For such a long time, um, idea that dogs had personalities was, you know, that was anthropomorphism, you know, putting human emotions onto non-human animals. But thankfully, we are now more and more people are coming to see that, yes, dogs do have personalities. Every dog is an individual. They have their own likes and dislikes. And it is really important to recognize those and cater for them. And, you know, not just likes and dislikes, they're individual needs. And this really is what the legs model is so good at helping people to see because you can go through and you can look at what the dogs learn. You can look at the environment which includes the people around them where they're living you know where they spend their time you can look at the genetics and what their genetic makeup shows of the traits that they're likely to have I mean I have a border collie who I describe as the colliest collie who ever collied because I love him to bits but he's a nutter he really is an absolute nutter very cute but he you know, those traits that collies often tend to have of being very high strung, very reactive. Um, I mean, you know, you're sitting on the sofa and you so much as breathe in thinking you might go outside and there's a dog at the door bouncing up and down going, where are we going? What are we doing? He's a collie. That's what collies can be like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. Obviously, Louise, you with Luna, she's a spaniel and she's got some very spaniel tendencies. And Sally, you have terriers and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really a terrier person because I just, I, I know that sort of personality doesn't really suit me so much. <laughs> you see, I'm needy and Spaniels are needy. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you pick the dog you are. Yeah. <laughs> what does that make me? <laughs> it, yeah, that, that really is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what they say about pets and their owners? <laughs> Using the dreaded pet one. Oh, yeah, pet. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, um, on bringing up language choices there. I'm trying to slowly change the the language on my website, for example, to canine coach and these kind of things from dog trainer, um, behavior, whatever, Um, because. And I change, for example, cost as well to investment 
because it's an investment in time it's a good idea um and just little little things but it's hard because um, what do people google dog trainer and seo so if you're not having dog trainer on your website you don't come up and so it's hard because there's a balance between wanting to put the right language out there to to promote this fdm style of training which i think a lot of people like you say are doing anyway but equally getting your foot in the door in the first place to even explain these things because people don't search family dog mediator yet um hopefully they will and and as it gets more out there but that's the thing i i struggle with of and i get a lot of um come train my dog and fix it i don't like the word fix it it's not it's banned in my training vocabulary with clients we don't fix dogs. We make them happier. We make your life happier. How can I help you both? Fixed implies they're broken and no dog is ever broken. Yeah, I, I believe that very strongly. No matter what problems a dog might be having in their situation, a dog is never broken. You find, Louise, that um, what would be the kind of the percentage between people who are pr- c- prepared to kind of try anything and open to um, allowing their dogs to be dogs and realising that, some behavior is not a training issue and people that say i'm going to have to get rid of this dog or this dog needs to be fixed what kind of percentage do you reckon you have there it's it's difficult for me to quantify because i once i get the initial inquiry i explain to people my style and i then often don't get the business because that people want a dog fixed once however people go yeah this is the kind of trainer I want one that's looking after my own dog's welfare I'd say it's then quite high because I've already kind of in a nice way promoted what my ethos is and my website I think speaks to that but even with that I'd still say Mm. it's only 60 70 percent of the people I'm then seeing and I think if you're encompassing the people that don't get through that i'd say it goes down to like 40 percent of owners in total including initial inquiries it's still quite low but people are open to it it's just being able to articulate that in the right way and that's where i'm getting better at that yeah yeah because people will pick somebody off out well out of the phone book they will pick somebody off the internet and there are so many websites out there where people say i'll sort your dog out there are so many videos where people are kind of making dogs walk nicely on the lead and the dogs always look cowed and quite miserable and a bit worried and a bit intimidated but people still go to them because they can't read that dog's body language and they can't understand that that they might be changing their behavior but there's a cost and a fallout for that and um, it's a shame that is. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I actually lose. I don't. I'm like. I mean, I've just moved, so I'm kind of to like two hours from where I lived before. So I'm kind of rebuilding up a client base. I had a really, really good, strong client base where I was before, but I'm finding I am feel like I'm battling a bit with it at the moment. Um, because between that kind of happy medium of wanting to help the dogs as much as possible by getting the clients in the door but equally explaining my ethos and I do think that I don't necessarily get as many clients as other people at the moment because people want those quick fixes and I and I don't offer them mm. ever and I sometimes find myself feeling like I'm banging my head a little against, a bit against a brick wall but I just know that patients will see mm. me through in the end and 
the clients that I do see are always happy and always say they love it and get a lot out of it and they love seeing their dogs happier and that's what for me anyway keeps me motivated on those days where I'm not quiet because said trainer up the road is offering a quick fix with a prong collar mm. where where about do you live and where have you moved from uh, I'm living in Kent um and I'm just outside Canterbury there are by the way some fantastic trainers around here as well I might add yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I must say but I moved from Sussex um so Haywards Heath and I relocated okay. about six weeks ago I think wasn't it Jay it wasn't okay. that long ago uh, middle of April wasn't it yeah. yeah 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 it wasn't that long ago so I'm I'm kind of trying to establish myself um in the area but so it's a bit of an adjustment the reason I ask that is um I found that when I was up north in West Cumbria the dogs were treated much worse by their owners they call themselves the owners don't they um compared to down here in Litchfield I'd say probably three hours down the motorway, you've gone forward 15, 20 years in understanding of dogs. Um, we saw a lot of people really hurting dogs up north. I know the local dog training club still did alpha roles. Um, and when we came down here into kind of Litchfield in Staffordshire, people were calling their dogs and treating their dogs and, and understanding their dogs. And I've never seen anybody be bad to a dog down here. So I think it does matter geographically where you are. I agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'd say Kent is on par with Sussex. It, it is pretty good, I'd say, for positive reinforcement. There's a lot of positive reinforcement trainers here. Lots of qualified, you know, there's some ABTC uh, behaviour, like CABs, uh, clinical animal behaviourists here. Um, there's PACT members, there's IMDT, there's Kennan Principals, there's yeah. Dog Training College. They're all These are all positive reinforcement associations that people are so it's pretty pretty good um but you still do get the odd one (laughs) but uh, yeah as far as it I'd say as well where I am in Canterbury um people tend to have a bit more money and people are happy to spend a bit more money on their dogs and 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 it is expensive unfortunately like I Jay and I were having a conversation in another episode about trying to make things as accessible as we can and that's why I do my own online courses for clients because instead of 50 pounds per hour it's 30 to 50 pounds for the entire course to try and make it accessible to people podcasts which are free um because it is expensive getting the right help because of the amount of thousands of pounds and hours we have to spend in educating ourselves yeah absolutely does you have to um you have to make a living um and help as many dogs as you can along the way don't you yeah i think probably all of us do we do sort of i think we give quite a bit away for free all of us well sally especially you you give an awful lot away to help people as much as possible i'm shocking <laughs> i'll never be rich but you'll be happy <laughs> you know you when you're walking down the street and you see a dog being pulled along or um something like that don't it it really enthuses you to keep teaching to keep pushing to keep trying um and that's why i give stuff away because mm-hmm. i want to make a difference for those misunderstood pushed around dogs that mm-hmm. we see so interestingly enough, it is it is relevant to um, our com- 
our topic of conversation today. My um that um TikTok I was telling you guys about that's been getting a bit of heat. For some reason, it's really going up in the kind of views by like the hundreds every hour at the moment. And I've just had an influx of another 10 comments of abuse. <laughs> well, while we've been sat here, while we've been sat here, honestly, I like I think it's important for listeners to kind of know the kind of stuff that you get in result for advocating for animal ethics. And these are some of the ones that I've had pop up while we've been sort of this isn't so much abuse, but I get people question this one. Like, what do you recommend for physically impaired people with reactive dogs? They just get pulled over with the harness. An interesting one uh, would would be, Sally, because you've worked with dogs that work with physically impaired people. What would your answer be to that question? When I've trained hearing dogs, they wore halties. I don't know if they still wear halties now, um, but we we had to teach them to walk on the lead. And and when they were taught on the lead, when they were taught to walk on the lead, they walked on the lead. Um, I mean, I, I had a um, Havanese cross working Cocker Spaniel and she was like a white cloud of energy, like mad energy. And um, she went to an 80-year-old lady who must have been seven stone and they got on brilliantly. Um, and because the dog was taught to live with that lady and to um, walk on the lead for rewards, and that was then how she behaved. And there's also, like you say, there are management tools that aren't prong collars. You know, safety has to be an aspect. And if you do have a, an, someone who has some sort of disability and they are struggling with the dog, you know, you can use a halty as a management tool if it means the latter is running into being pulled into the road whilst training is also paired with this to then remove that. But it doesn't then mean you should equal a prong collar or a shock collar or something that is causing severe harm to the dog and emotional harm as well. Like it doesn't have to be the other end of the spectrum, but there are some cases where you could use a halty to help management when safety's in mind. But then as well, you don't have to stop there with management, do you? You don't, if you've got someone that's being pulled into the road, then you start to ask, do we need to change the way we walk? Do we need to change how we walk? Do we need to bring someone else in to walk the dog? Um, We we just make the management, we make it bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where why would we walk that dog along that road with that person if it's causing this? Um, Why wouldn't we instead question whether the dog needed to walk every day? Could we, um, if the dog's so wild on the lead, could we um, take a good look at that dog's personality and say perhaps we could do scent work in the garden with them twice a week? instead of getting out and and Mm -hmm. doing these walks um so it it doesn't have to fit into a box it doesn't have to be okay we've got to have this dog walking on the lead nicely so we stick a prong collar on it we say instead we've got to think about this situation well outside of this situation and ask 
what can we do instead for this dog and this person who obviously get along, probably love each other very much? What can we do instead? And this, this is where it ties back to, mm-hmm. to the legs model look- again, isn't it? Because you can look at that situation and you can look at the learning, what that dog's you know, past history of learning has been, what's happened, why are they reactive, what's happened to them in their past. You look at their environment. What is it in their environment that they are reacting to? Are they seeing lots of individual triggers that are ramping their arousal up? Look at their genetics. Are they a breed that is particularly like, say, for instance, me with my border collie? He's very visually driven. If you see something, you know, that's it. He's primed and ready for motion. And then you look at self, which is the combination of the whole lot of their experience, their personality, all of those little traits all adding up together. And when you look at that, all of that together, that's when you can start to see the things that we can look at to help in that situation. Or equally, there will be times where the situation can't actually be helped. It's just not a good fit one way or the other. Because not only do the dogs have legs, people have legs too. Mm-hmm. All of those, those four factors... Any any living creature has those four legs. Both both parties in it have needs that need to be met. Yeah. And both people's um, mental health needs to be looked after. You know, just as much as ours shouldn't suffer, neither should the dogs and vice versa. Management needs to come into it. And as Sally said, quite rightly, it doesn't just mean about a physical tool on the dog. It can be the world in which they're exposed to around them that management comes from, other family members, hiring in help if that's not if that's something you're able to do. Um, you know, using things like borrow my dog, if that's a possibility, it's not the best thing because it's someone unqualified. But if you don't have the money and the funds to pay for someone professional and you don't have family, there are things out there that can help with management if for example someone has a physical disability and they are struggling with their dog it shouldn't mean as a result that the dog suffers and, and has a physical punishment because the setup isn't right um that, and that's the thing isn't it? it's that i think that's what kim does with legs she takes away from that a dog should do this a dog should be this an owner should have a well-trained dog um if they can't do it a trainer comes in and does it a dog should walk nicely on the lead a dog should be seen and not heard and she just smashes it and says no we're two different species living in a home and there are no rules other than the welfare of the dog and the welfare of the person must be good for the welfare of that relationship and other than that anything goes yeah. I think as well society has come a long way um I th- particular with child, how they view children it used to be children should be seen and not heard and now we know children have voices much like dogs do uh, dogs just can't physically speak but neither can babies so it's advocating for someone who cannot advocate for themselves mm. and that's that's simply put I think what a lot of FDM is it's advocating for for the animal in that instance and educating the owner so that they can understand the dog advocating for themselves, understanding their body language, understanding what the dog's telling them from different things so that they can live more harmoniously. Yeah, and I think also explaining to people that behaviour is never personal. When we look at behaviour, we look at what the dog is trying to tell us. It's all communication. And the, the dog is trying to tell us something about their situation, something that... 
isn't right for them in that moment. And it's about learning who they are and what they need so that we can interpret what they're telling us and change the situation so that they don't feel they need to growl at somebody or, you know, bark. It's, it's fulfilling their needs rather than just trying to stop them doing what they're doing in that situation. Yeah, squeeze them into a box. It's like square peg, round hole situation all the time with dogs I feel <laughs> like it's, it's not going to work <laughs> um, well, I know it, we've, we've talked on episodes before haven't we about that mm. societal expectation of, of dogs and how it's just not reality it, it isn't mm-hmm. I mean you know you hark back to the likes of Lassie and and so on and it's just so not how they are that's um the no the family dog mediation is based on applied ethology and I'll just explain that for people that don't kind of understand what ethology is. And it is observing an animal in their most natural environment. And for domestic dogs who've lived with us for generation after generation for thousands of years, their most natural environment is with us. Um, so ethology is basically if you live with a dog, it's watching them in order to find out how they live naturally and in order to find out what they need from us in order to live as naturally as possible. Um, and with dog training in the past and with the dog training that we see on the television and, and all of this, what we're doing is we're forcing what we want onto the dog in order to change their behaviour and make them easier to live with for us. But what applied ethology is we take a step back and we look right in at the dog and we let them tell us what they need. And then when we know what they need, because we've sharpened our eyes enough to work out and understand what they need from what they're telling us, their behaviour will change naturally they will become more relaxed because a lot of the things that we see as problem behavior now, they're not actually problem behavior. They're dogs that are trained to be heard and that are trained to meet their own needs in a situation where we're making it difficult for them to do that. And so that's, I believe, what Kim's trying to say and do with applied ethology is let your dog tell you what he needs and do your damn best to meet those needs and you won't have to do as much training because your dog will naturally be easy enough, easier to live with. It's such a good and, point. And I think it's such a it's such a good way of phrasing it because I think it's really important to the listeners to understand that this ethos doesn't mean that you just don't, oh, you just live with these behaviours. What you're saying is, by looking at and understanding the dog at a deeper level and meeting their needs, these these unwanted and inverted commas behaviours are less likely to even occur in the first place. Yeah, yeah. To, to use sort of a, an example that that we refer to quite often, as said earlier, with the reactive dog. Yeah, when you can understand what their needs are and take the pressure off them, so they're not being forced into these situations where they react. They don't react. <laughs> They don't, yeah, they don't react and, and sort of life becomes far more normal. And it's really, I think for me, I can sum it up as it's living in harmony, both you and your dog. They're just sort of living comfortably together. And I can't think of anything better, to be honest, than just living happily with my dogs. And I think it's advocating for your dogs. It is advocating for their mental health matters too. 
their feelings matters too. They they matter too. It's not just getting a dog to walk to heal and that's the best dog in the world. <laughs> Some of those dogs are really unhappy. Some are very happy, I must also add. Um, but it's 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 looking beyond just training and looking beyond the societal's um impression of what it should be when you have a dog and that exactly brings us back to the title of is it really a training issue and no it's not always <laughs> no it's not always is it Mm-mm. no I mean yeah. none, none of us here we, all of our dogs have a certain amount of training coaching as we prefer to call it but there are things that other people will train their dogs in that I mean you know you see that sort of stereotypical dog walk where the dog is marching at heel and they're just sort of staring straight ahead on a short lead. And that, that just seems how some people want to walk their dog. I had this great hatred for the phrase walk the dog because I don't walk the dog. I walk with my dog. <laughs> um, because, you know, my version of loosely walking is no matter how long the lead is, as long as he's not pulled the lead taut, he's loosely walking. And let them sniff. It, let it, your damn dog sniff. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that nose goes down and we're happy. Just stop. What does it matter? If you spend half an hour just going up and down your driveway, if your dog doesn't want to go any further, fine. If your dog wants to go on an your hour march, then fine. Your dog's fine. checking their social media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dog's checking their social media. Yeah. Just, you know, just just put your phone in your pocket because that's another one of my pet hates is the people with, who are out with their dogs who are scrolling on their phone. I think you're out with your dog. Be with your dog. I think that's a whole other um, episode. People. <laughs> People are obsessed. They make phones, they make social media to make us obsessed. Um, when really we've got 10, 12 years with this most beautiful, beautiful creature, we shouldn't be wasting any of it looking at our phone because in 11 and a half, 12 years' time, when we have to say goodbye to this dog, that, that's gone. That, you know. You're, you're never going to be sitting there after they've gone thinking, oh, I wish I'd spent more time on my mm-hmm. phone. Uh, and you're never going to be thinking, oh, God, I'd wish I'd, God, I wish I'd get that perfect heel better. <laughs> you're not going to look <laughs> back at that, are you? You're going to think, oh, I wish I'd just let my dog run a bit more. Christ, yeah. you know, and let them be happy. And and I, equally, I think it's very important to say we're not judging anyone that, that does this or, you know, that is what society's dictated, right? We're trying to put the message out that you don't need to do that. And half the time yeah. I speak to people and they go, I don't really like doing it anyway. It's just sort of what I had to do. It didn't really make me feel good. I don't know if you find that and you go, you don't have to, it's fine. And they go, thank God. And you give them a bit of a pass and a break. And then they, they feel more comfortable to advocate for their dog a bit more. Yeah. I, I, I think that is growing. There's more and more people thinking like that now. Um, and like you say, they're doing it because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And when you say to them, well, actually, you know, no, I give you can't blanche not to do that, to just do what you want to do with your dog. You know, if you don't want to go for a walk, you want to do scent work in the garden, that's fine. Do scent work in the garden mm-hmm. and snuggle on the yeah. sofa. You know, people tend to cry at me um, if I, when I explain to them how their dog's feeling and the emotional responses they have and that they might actually be in pain because I've done that based on a dog's behaviour. And so many people kind of, they'll, they'll cry and they'll say, oh, I feel really bad now. I, I, you know, I feel really bad at thinking my dog's being naughty when actually they were struggling in that situation. I had them in. That goes, to, there's a saying that I use an awful lot. Um, 
people are only ever doing the best they can with what they know. And it, it, it is really difficult then when you know. I, mean, I know something that you say often, Sally, as well, is once you see, you can't unsee. And that is really, really hard. But, I actually learned that from Sally on one of her courses. Yeah, I think I did as well originally. <laughs> it, I I it was, it was, the, it was. It's not called this bit. It was the Canine Body Language Workshop, and what's yeah. it called? It's got a Canine Communication the, Language of a Species. Canine, yeah, yeah. Brilliant one, yeah, one. I, I yeah. Sally goes at the beginning. I'm really sorry, but if you once you learn this, you won't be able to unlearn it. So don't, you know, don't yeah. <laughs> don't continue with it if you don't want to don't want to know basically and I finished it and I was like I can't honestly everything oh god no that dog's unhappy and then you see family's dogs and you go oh my gosh that dog's actually quite unhappy but you can't say anything because that's unsolicited advice which I would never yeah. do but <laughs> it is like taking the goggles off yeah, yeah. and you're like oh my god <laughs> So I do have to point out actually that the Sally is, is sort of 75% of the reason that I'm in the dog world anyway because uh, when I started having problems with my dog I stumbled over one of Sally's courses and I've never left since. <laughs> you know, she's she's you're stuck with her now Sally. <laughs> she's not allowed to go. <laughs> it's like having a second uh, me. Uh, it's brilliant. Sally is also, is also the reason that um, good guardianship exists um, because it, it, sort of, it originally started... Well, it originally started out Sally by herself, and then we went into partnership, and um, now I'm venturing out on my own. And you'll make a brilliant, brilliant success of it. Yeah, I've been trying to tell her to go out on her own as well. I'm like, do it. Yeah. You can do it. <laughs> well, someone did actually stop me the other day and said, are you doing some dog training? Unfortunately, I had my reactive dog with me at the time who took exception to the person he didn't know. So I'm going, yeah, but sorry, sorry, I'll have to catch you again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, really really good as my next one said to me one day he's such a great advert for you <laughs> honestly but you should have seen him before we started working on him Bless well him. um i think that's been really 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 informative for our listeners and i hope you guys have found this informative um and have learned a bit more about the legs setup and, and how it works um does anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to add before we finish this episode? I think I would say if you're listening to this as a dog guardian and you feel that other people judge you for your dog's behaviour and you have to make your dog behave a certain way because of how people are looking at you, stop worrying about people because it's only your dog that's your job great advice and that that's what I would say Jay any any final thoughts takeaways I, I think Sally sort of summed it up quite well there for me it, it's it's the same it's all about listening to the dog in front of you and finding ways for you to live together in harmony nobody else matters you know whether you want your dog on the sofa off the sofa whether you don't care about getting that perfect heel it's what works for you and your dog so that you can be happy together and heel is a human invention isn't it a dog on a collar and a lead is a human invention heel is a human invention dogs they just have to comply if we think it's important we don't have to think it's important and I think my takeaway would be something my mum always said to me growing up which (laughs) 
sort of went in my head but it was it's none of my business what you think of me and that very much applies to this situation it's none of your business what they think of you and your dog it is only your business what you think of you and your dog and what makes you feel good um and I'll try and practice what I preach but I'm incredibly sensitive and care about everyone what everyone thinks of me (laughs) but you know I think that um yeah I think the takeaways are it's okay to advocate for your dog it's okay to advocate for dogs even if you do it on the internet and people are really horrible to you Louise you're still oh I didn't even read I won't even bother I won't even bother um reading some of the, the nasty ones because it just nah. not, to be honest I just delete it, them and block them but that one person that you reach that says I'm not going to put one of these on my dog now or a trainer tries to tell them to do it you could have stopped that happening for that one dog and that dog's worth them thousands of miserable comments that's <laughs> what so I have to tell myself and then I'll block and delete them and then get rid of them <laughs> yeah Oh, uh, well, Sally, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. It's been fun, and, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I've, we've, I've really, I've really, really loved it. And I thank you on behalf of our listeners as well. I know you're incredibly busy. So I'm really, really grateful for you taking time out of your of your day to come and join us on the For Dog's Sake podcast. Oh, thank you for asking me. It's been lovely to speak with you both. Maybe we could persuade you to come back on another one. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> um, That's it for today from us and um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Bye.